Welcome back to the Cyclotips Podcast, everybody. It is Tuesday, February 1st. We just wrapped up a pretty spectacular weekend of racing in Arkansas. The Cyclocross World Championships have finished up. We're going to be talking about that today, lots of other things. And because of Cross Worlds, we've got a slightly different crew for you today. Let's introduce the, uh, maybe a new voice. I think, Mike, you've been on the... You've been on the pod before, haven't you? Uh, I don't know. I think this may be my first time. This may be Mike's first time on the podcast. This is Mike Better. He's our social media editor. He was on the ground in Fayetteville, Arkansas over the weekend. Plus, Jose Bain. Jose, you are our resident cyclocross expert. Welcome back to the pod. I think that it's been a year. It's been almost <laughs> since the, a to- well, since the Tour de France, really, since people would have heard you, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. And I should I should mention just right off the top that Jose will be back for the Tour de France this year, plus maybe a couple other episodes throughout the year, sprinkled throughout the year. Welcome back, Jose. It's good to have you. Thank you. And of course, just regular old Ronan. Yep. That's me. <laughs> and Abby, how are you, Abby? Yep. Good. Yep, good. Yep, yep. I like the energy for both of you two. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're, we're, we're like over the hump of the day here in Europe, so uh, that, that's that's my excuse. We've also been Jose here before. To shame. It's not exciting for us to be here. We're here all the time. <laughs> it is exciting. It's always exciting. All right, let's get into today's episode. Like I said, we're going to be talking cross worlds. We've got, we've got, oh, this is the first thing on the run sheet. We've gotten a new Astana wrap, so obviously we're going to be piping some of that into your ear holes at some point in the next hour. Uh, we've got a, a quick Egan Bernal update, an Amy Peters update, road season update. Road season is underway. Stuff is happening. Races are going off. People are winning and losing and all sorts of fun stuff. And finally, end of today's episode, for today's Nerd Nugget, we're going to talk about time trial bikes. And I believe Ronan and I might be getting into a bit of a heated debate as to whether they're terrible or not. <laughs> we'll be talking about that at the end of the show. But let's get into it. So, because it's first on the run sheet, and we really do need to get this out of the way, Stana has a new rap. Astana, Kazakhstan team. This is Astana, Kazakhstan team. Yeah. <laughs> Looking fresh. We are ready to win. Please, no. <laughs> don't, don't. We are rolling pedals for the gold medals. Our job is to win. Astana is my team. We are riding to win, and it will be done. Astana is my team from Kazakhstan. We are rolling pedals for the gold medals. Our job is to win. Uh, you, you know, but if we're gonna if we're gonna take this from a from a musical perspective, uh, you know, put our Matt Deneef hats on. How do we feel about about this tune? Uh, did did they do well? Did they do poorly? What do we think? I think. I think given that I listened to it while uh, getting the, the van washed and I had to turn the radio down really low so that the people watching the van didn't hear it uh, <laughs> for fear of being <laughs> kind of tells us all we need to know. <laughs> I feel like this sort of falls, it falls directly in the uh, any press is good press category for, for Astana, right? Like they've, they've done this before, right? First of all, they've done raps previously. The last one, was just as terrible as the one that that popped up overnight. But they don't seem to care. They seem to be into it. Why? Why do they keep doing this to us? Did UAE also do a rap? I I would like them to have a rap battle. Uh, 
Green Edge did a rap at some point, didn't they? I, f- I feel like UAE did a rap because I, for some reason, I have like an image of Pogacha rapping in my head that I no, can't seem yeah, to shake. It, it happened. No, it happened. Right. So they should have a rap battle, the two of them. The Green Edge, they they just can't top the Call Me Maybe video from like years and years Maybe ago. Maybe that's the one I'm thinking of for them. <laughs> Maybe that's the one I'm thinking of for them. I knew that they did something. Yeah, that was pretty fantastic. Well, um, Astana, perhaps a, a musical swing and a miss, I, I think. Um, probably not going to be on repeat on my Spotify anytime soon. But, you know. Ooh controversial d for effort that's what that's what we'll say (laughs) moving on past the astana rap uh we both you're welcome and we apologize for that entire segment let's get into cyclocross world so we've got two folks here who are into cross one who was on the ground in arkansas should we start with the winners actually maybe abby since you're our our dane news fill-in who won the bike races over the weekend? I can do a quick run over of who won which bike races for the elite men's race. It was uh, Tom Pitcock won with a extremely questionable victory salute. And Mariana Voss took the win on the women's side, which was very exciting. Jose, take it, take it away. Yeah. Uh, for the for the women, it was a battle of the Dutch um, with uh, Puk Pietersen, Fem van Empel, and Shirin van Androoy. Fem van Empel, by far the strongest, but she made a mistake in the final lap. And then it came down to a sprint between Pietersen and Van Androoy. And Pietersen took home that world title. And in the men's category, it was a uh, clean sweep for the Belgians. It was uh, one, two, three for Belgium with um, a great tactical race kind of killing off the Dutch guys, um, as was expected. They Those would be the dominant nations. And uh, Joran Visseur, I think... One of the most unknown of the team uh, just basically rode off in lap one to try and make the Dutch guys work and, and stayed away for the entire race. Um, Emil Verstringer came in second and Thibaut Nijs, the son of, was third. And when it comes to the junior categories, very dominant performance by Zoe Backstedt um, with two Dutch girls on the podium as well. And when it comes to the Junior men, uh, Jan Christen is a Swiss guy. He's on the Pogi team, uh, the team of Tadej Pogacar. He already signed a pre-contract with Team UAE. So kind of the versatile, um, can-do-everything kind of rider uh, who we will probably see on the road in the near future with Team UAE. There we go. Let's start at the top there. I want to talk about Mariana Voss. And, and there's been a lot of you know, greatest of all time stuff thrown around in the last 48 hours. I feel like every time she adds a a victory of this magnitude, which still happens somewhat frequently, we have this same conversation. But I mean, every single time you add one, she's tipping closer and closer to definitively the greatest of all time. How do we how do we feel about this particular debate at this point? What what does she have to do more, Kaylee? I don't know. She has won Olympic titles on the road, on the track, eight cyclocross titles, has been on the podium at the Road Worlds 10 times, coming in second six times. Yeah, she can't win the Tour de France like Eddie Merckx did because we don't have a Tour de France. But I don't think what she, what, what does she have to do more? 
I mean, she she does. She does have to win the Tour de France in order to <laughs> claim her GOAT title. We got, uh, it's we gonna got be it. hard. We got it coming up, and uh, I think that that would be the last thing on her on her checklist. Although, has she won? Has she won? No, I don't think it's it was it was cut, no. canceled before she started racing. Yeah, she's only like thirty four, but she can. Uh, she can. She could. She could try. I mean, it's I, not this year. <laughs> it's not impossible, probably, for her to win it this year, but it certainly suits others better that's going to be a difficult one to add but i mean i was i was posing the question so we could start talking about it yesterday but i i tend to agree with you i don't know what else she could really really do uh, again other than win a tour de france but that has not been an option for most of her career and so i don't think you can necessarily really hold that against her right i mean there's, there's just at this point there's nobody else that 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 comes close for me now, and the great thing is that she says that she's going to continue as long as she is physically uh, healthy and enjoying it. So there might be another four years, five years coming up uh, with Mariana Vos. And just to think that her first title came in 2006. And there was all sorts of stats out on the internet of who was president in 2006 and who was winning the Tour de France. And and it's just, it's a lifetime. Do you know what you did in 2006? Graduated it's, from high school. I was in sixth grade. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, it's 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 such a ridiculously long period of dominance by by one person. She won a world title on the road when she was nineteen. Now, she she did have a couple years there where she wasn't winning very much, right? She had some sort of overtraining issues and injuries and things like that. Do you do you think that that could maybe help her in the long run? Because she was almost she was kind of forced to take like what an entire season season and a half off right and and you're talking about it, particularly in women's racing you often have riders who can be very very good into their late 30s early 40s it's like Annemiek van Vluten is is a couple years older than Mariana Voss and still winning lots of stuff do we think that, that that forced break may actually help her in sort of the the span of her career uh, it, it did teach her to um set goals she's not going to be around the entire year. She's going to say, well, I've got a peak period in spring. I'm going for Giro Tour de France probably, and then I'll be back for the cyclocross season. She she doesn't do it all anymore. She really learned that she has to balance it out and can't have a full program anymore. I think that's what she learned because there were years in the Women's World Cup that she won eight out of 10 races. Uh, those times are now over also due to the fact that the level of women's cycling has gone up spectacularly. But she's really balancing it out now. And that's why she won't do any cyclocross in that rainbow jersey until, well, probably late November, early December. Mm. Speaking of racing all season and winning lots of things across the entire season, uh, Tom Pidcock told our colleagues, I think it was Jim Cotton over at News, told him in December that he wanted to win all three world championships in a single year. So that for him would be cyclocross, road, and mountain bike, something that Pauline Ferrand-Prevost is the only rider to have done, right? Uh, now he's 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 got, I got an Olympic championship last year. He's now has the cyclocross championship. Can he do this? I know that Matt Deneef is working on a story that's gonna be on the site sometime today or tomorrow that, that digs into this a little bit deeper and whether he can actually win Road Worlds and Mountain Bike Worlds this year based off the courses and who else is here. But but do we think this is a feasible thing for Pitcock? I think he has almost already proved he can do it given that Olympic success, given the cyclocross success now, and then 
arguably had the World Championships in Belgium been a little bit longer in September, he he could have made it across that front group and been in contention for the one there. So uh, he's he's kind of proved that it's possible within even six months, never mind a full a full year. Uh, if he can win the Olympics, he can certainly win the the mountain bike World Championships. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Whether or not he gets the opportunity, he needs he probably needs courses and all the stars to align and and that sort of thing. That's probably the bigger challenge than for himself in terms of ability or or skill set or whatever. Yeah, like I said, Matt is working on a story digging into the courses and whether they really suit him. So keep an eye on cyclingtips.com. Great website. <laughs> keep an eye on cyclingtips.com for that story and a deeper dive. But I believe, you know, I was chatting with, with Matt on Slack last night, and I believe that the Wollongong course, uh, the Road Worlds course, the end of this year, it does actually suit him pretty well. It's sort of lumpy, but not hugely mountainous, definitely not flat, kind of in that nice middle range that Pidcock tends to do quite well. So I think that the road worlds is, is possible. I mean, let's be honest, if you're the strongest rider in the race, you're, you're likely to win across worlds. If you're the strongest rider in the race, you're, you're pretty likely to win a mountain bike worlds. You can be the strongest rider in the race and not win a road worlds, right? That's, that's road racing. So I do think that's going to be the, the most difficult one for him to get, but it's possible. And I think we haven't been able to say that for quite some time. We haven't seen a rider capable of doing that on the men's side in quite some time. Uh, but far more important, I think, than, than Pitcock's run at three world championships in a single year. Abby, how do you feel about his, um, his celebration across the line today? I think you had opinions about this. Yeah, no, it's, it was really dumb. It looks <laughs> stupid. I like, I, I get that he was he had like this huge uh, time buffer, and so he he was like, oh, I could do something super cool. Like, how long do you think it, it took him to prep that? Actually, like, do you think that he was practicing that in training, or he just yeah, he probably said something. I see multiple people raising their fingers, but still, <laughs> like he it it wasn't even a good Superman. It didn't look like a good Superman. His legs were flimsy. Like maybe he needs to do a little bit more core work. I don't know. <laughs> so the rumor the rumor going around the press room was that. He, a teammate had actually bet him to do it when he won a few days prior. And so apparently it was something that was in the works for, you know, a couple of days there. Well, actually a couple of years. Um, there, was a, there was an interview four years ago in a Belgian newspaper. They went to Leeds where he lives. Um, it, was, it was kind of a cocky interview. He said, I'm just going to win the world title when I'm 19. So I'm going to do it one year faster than Mathieu van der Poel. For the photo shoot of that article, he did the exact same thing. Have, you, have, have any of you ever tried to do that? Yes. It's kind of painful. No, it's not. It's easy. It's not like it's a it's hard not difficult. thing to do. It's difficult. It just hurts your belly. <laughs> Which is probably why it, his facial expression and also his legs did not look good while he was doing it. <laughs> okay. The, the, the head-on shot didn't look great. He was a little bit loosey-goosey, a little bit noodly in the legs there. But... but it was the coolest photo finish photo ever, right? Because he's like, he's fully flying in the photo finish photo. And you can't tell that his, that his legs are loosey-goosey in that one. Well, okay, so someone, if someone photoshops out the bike, then yes, he'd be fully flying. Then it would be <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> I wasn't expecting this take from Abby. This, this anti-Superman take. <laughs> well, I thought it was great. I appreciate a, a non-standard uh, victory salute, if you can even call it a victory salute, really. 
uh, it would have been really unfortunate if he'd fallen over or something like that. Which it, at one point he did look like he was about to do. Unfortunate for him. <laughs> Maybe just more entertainment for us at home, but definitely would have been unfortunate for, for Pitcock. That is very true. That's very true. Let's get back into the actual racing. I, I think one of the one of the big dynamics of the whole weekend was the, well, every cross weekend is the Dutch Belgian rivalry. Can can you speak to that a little bit, Jose, or maybe Mike, because you saw it in real in 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 person? Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the best dynamics was, you know, the Belgian superstar, the the cannibal, Sven Nies, working with the top two men's and women's Dutch stars, Lars van der Haar and Lucinda Brand, and Sven was staying at the Belgian team hotel with the whole national team, but not working with them and it was also interesting in that the dutch camp all the other national teams were together when they were in their warm-up tents and and the dutch were all staying in separate hotels and all had their individual little team setups and and so it was it's quite an interesting weekend uh the, the thing with cyclocross is it's not olympic so um the belgian union the dutch union british cycling they don't get a lot of money this trip to the US emptied the entire reserve of the Dutch Cycling Union. Um, it cost the Belgians 100,000 euro to transport their gear over to America. So um, I think a lot of the commercial teams chipped in uh, with good accommodation for their riders uh, as to not let the union, uh, the cycling union, pay for it. So um, it, there's just no money in cyclocross. The only money there is, is with the commercial teams. That's why the Dutch only brought so few riders that just didn't have more money to bring more people. Yeah, and I so I heard that Ineos was actually working with Pitcock and, and funded Pitcock's way to the earth so that British Cycling could use their funds for the juniors under 23 and the other members of the program. Yeah, if you go to cyclocross in Europe and see the outfit that Ineos have, they have two of their biggest trucks, one for Pitcock alone and his carer, and one for the mechanics. They they take up half the parking space alone. Uh, him and Bout van Aert. I'm over here playing the world's tiniest violin uh, for all the Europeans that have to come to like the occasional bike race in America because this is what the American racers and and all the organizations behind them, either it's teams or or you know USA Cycling, whatever. This is what they have to deal with throughout the entire season, right? tens of thousands of dollars to, to go be in a different continent the entire time. Every single time there's a big bike race here in America, the, the Europeans complain about it. Half of them don't even come because they can't fly for seven hours. They're soft. <laughs> They're completely, completely soft. <laughs> this is what every single American bike racer has had to do for every single bike race ever. They have to be away from home. No, no American bike racer can drive an hour to get to some other piece of Belgium to do a, a cross race. I, it, I think it's embarrassing. If they think that going to the U.S. for Cross Worlds was hard, then, like, what are they going to do with Australia? Well, that's different because that's an Olympic sport. It's road cycling. So uh, they get a lot of they get money from the government and from the national lottery as the system goes in the Netherlands. But that doesn't they don't have any money coming from the national government for cyclocross because it's not Olympic. So it has to come out of the reserves of the Dutch Cycling Union. If it's a road race or a mountain bike, that's Olympic. So they get actual money for that. So there will be less complaining, hopefully. Yeah, that's great for like the Bel Belgium and the Netherlands, but 
what about every single other European country that doesn't get funding from the Olympic Federation? It's going to be a little I bit rough. I think the system is more I, or less I'm with the Kaylee. same. I'm like world's smallest ball violin over here. Like, I don't <laughs> no, know. No, I, I, completely, I completely agree. There was a whole lot that like, were like tens of articles in Belgian media about how expensive it was and how blah, 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 et cetera, and that we should just move it to some Belgium uh, pasture land. But um, yeah, it, it, the most funding in European cycling unions comes solely based on Olympic status. And that's the problem with cyclocross. It doesn't have that. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Let's get into the course a little bit. So, Mike, you were there. Uh, there were some cl complaints on the internet. Twitter was abuzz with people, well, just saying it was a you know, a boring course or a boring race or the, it wasn't particularly well done. What was the what was the sense on the ground? And you spoke to riders, heard, heard riders talking about it. What what was the reaction from the people that were actually there? Yeah, so I was I was milling around on on Friday before the races started. And and definitely the the feeling was that the riders loved the new course, but loved, I guess, is a strong word, but they they didn't hate it. Um, the course was lengthened from the World Cup, which saw extremely muddy conditions, and this was dry and dusty. So I think the complaints on Twitter was just the conditions, like it's summer cross. W what are you gonna do when everyone's pretty much running file treads? You, you can't do much. Any course is gonna look quote unquote boring. So I think I, the people on Twitter need to shut up. I, I, I mean, like the, the classic like road race course in my mind is like the old Cross Vegas course or something, right? That's on like sort of grass and that's that's pretty much it. It wasn't like that though. I mean, you used that race used to have groups of 15 coming across the line because drafting was so important. It, it wasn't, you know, these were still small groups. It, it split up. It didn't look, at least on television, like it was, you know, full on road race. As long as you sit in the draft, you're going to you're going to hang on forever. So I, I'm not entirely sure what the what the complaints about the complaints were about. Other than, like you said, it, it was dry, which it could have been. It could have been wet and nasty. It's it's wintertime in Arkansas, but it, it ended up being yeah, basically a gravel event, <laughs> gravel crit. It's it's a it's a bit that the think the Belgians think that they own this sport and that it sh should and can only happen in Belgian uh, pastures with manure or dog shit in the case of Hogerheide. Um It was everywhere. Um, so they it was it was really gross. Um, normally you can't see it because there's other people, but now there was nobody there, so you could see it everywhere. Anyways, um, the Belgians think that they own this sport and that it should only happen under their conditions uh, and that they didn't win six titles and only just one because the conditions were not Belgian. So it's a bit sour, sore loser, mm. I think. There was no sandpit, right? And there were no barriers. So that I was a bit weird. 36 stale run-up, which was insane. Right there, that was so much fun. I, w I personally went there during the elite races to watch the race. And to just feel the vibes because that's kind of where all the fans congregated and it was awesome you got to see them run up the stairs and then go down this huge descent and then i loved the swiss junior doing the tail whip over that little whip to do and then people yelled at me for calling it a tail whip on social i'm it sorry it's kind of a tail whip i mean it wasn't a big one but it was a <laughs> it was a tail whip i mean well we should say that like uci regulations actually don't require any barriers they don't there doesn't have to be any barriers in, in, a, in a cross course ditto for sand I do feel like, you know, get a dump truck and 
put some sand in there. That that seems like a very actually that's a very American way to do a cross course, which is just to stick a bunch of sand right in the middle of somewhere where there shouldn't be sand. I think that would have been that would have been totally fine by me. But I I still found the racing entertaining, and I don't I don't really understand the I don't really understand the complaints about the course over the weekend. Wait, before you transition, I just want to say really quick that if anyone wants to hear a deeper dive into the women's elite or U23 races, freewheeling is everyone took notes while they were watching. So it's going to be a pretty good episode this week. There you go. Well, that's it from Cyclocross Worlds. Good way to cap the season, I think. Uh, There's always more cross races after this, which kind of confuses me, but I guess that's the same in road racing, right? Uh, you got Lombardia after Worlds, so you get to show up in your new rainbow bands. We'll probably go back. <laughs> but nobody does. But nobody really does. <laughs> because Marianne Voss and Tom Pitcock are, are not, not doing there. any cross anymore. Yep, they're going to go back to road racing. Uh, I think Pitcock said that he's he's basically going to pop back on the road race scene by is it middle end of March. Do we have a, do we have a, a clear idea of what his early he's... season looks like? He's doing Algarve, which is, I think, the 18th of February. Wow. That's a quick turnaround. Yeah. So. What about what about Voss? What's she up to in the next couple of weeks? She doesn't say just yet. They are going to the uh, drawing table to uh, pick a plan and to see which races are going to be important for her or for the team. Uh, a little bit of rest and then uh, back to it. Gotcha. Well, let's kick on here. Egan Bernal, we have a, a short update on Bernal. He is conscious, which is great news. Abby, what else do we know? After we recorded last week, there was a couple updates from Bernal, but the most recent is actually from Bernal himself. He posted to his Instagram um, a picture of him in the hospital bed with his neck brace doing an okay, okay symbol. Um and he said, having had a 95% chance of becoming paraplegic and nearly losing my life doing what I love to do most. Today, I want to thank God and Clinica Universidad de la Sabana um, and all the specialists for doing the impossible. So he's conscious. He's able to move all four of his extremities, which is really good. As we talked last time, it was really up in the air what the extent of his injuries were going to be once he... Uh, woke up from the surgeries and and kind of started to move around. But it does seem like things are headed in a good direction for him life-wise. We obviously still don't know anything about riding bikes, but that is not that important at this point in time. He he said he's got a ton of support from his team, Ineos Grenadiers, and he does mention He's still in the ICU and will have more surgeries, and we don't know the details on that, but it's it's a good update as far as movement, consciousness. Yeah, it points to at least a pretty good quality of life going forward, if not if not professional cycling again. But like you said, that's a that's a secondary or tertiary or even beyond that concern at this point in time is is you know, the the, the primary concern is making sure that well, he's up and walking and things like that. Uh which sounds more likely than it did uh, a week ago. So that's all good, all great news, I think. Uh, we have an update on Amy Peters as well. Jose, do, do you want to do, do this one? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, uh, as you know, Amy crashed um, in training on the 23rd of December in Spain um, doing sprints, and she landed 
well, badly, obviously, um, was transported to the Netherlands, um, I think 10 days after a crash. She's now in a Dutch hospital and um, not in ICU anymore. She's in a, on a normal um, department for people with brain damage because that's what it is. She is responsive somewhat. She's breathing on her own, but it's still very unsure what will happen next. If you look at the case of Stig Broeks, um, some of you might have seen that uh, movie that we aired on Cycling Tips. He was in this state for five months. Um, and they're going to try and, um, yeah, wake her up. It, it might even take another two months before they know more. Um, the, the brain damage is really severe. And, um, yeah, they just don't know. It's 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 something of the long term. Like I said, Stig Brooks is himself pretty happy with his life now um but he's he's a medical miracle and i hope that amy will be one too that's our update on amy peters yeah still in a coma and will be for some time so as always our thoughts go out to, to everybody that is close to amy um yeah this this weekend sd works have their team presentation and it kind of shows that the team is moving on as well. The road season is starting on Friday or on Sunday in Valencia for SD Works and has started for the men's teams uh, on Mallorca this week and Grand Prix La Marseillaise on Sunday. Yeah, the, the road season waits for nobody, for better or for worse. Uh, let's get into let's get into the road season, which has kicked off. Abby, uh, not a ton of huge races thus far, but given the sort of altered early season, you know, no no big World Tour, Tour Down Under, et cetera, et cetera. These races are quite important because they're, you know, the first kind of tests for riders that are that really want to be fast in about six, eight weeks, right? So what do we know so far? These are really interesting early season races, races that continue to get more and more important. If Shadi was here, he would shake his fist and be like the good old days. But it is definitely, these races are getting bigger and bigger. So Challenge Mallorca had five one-day races that we don't have to go into all of them because that would take forever, but just kind of rattling off the winners of the races and how they were won. Brandon McNulty won the first race solo. The next day was won by, I'm going to butcher his name, but Jose can correct me because she just chatted with him. Benim Grimay in kind of a bunch sprint. The next day was Tim Wellens. He was in a group of, I think, six and one from that group with Val Verde getting second. Val Verde took his revenge and won the next day. <laughs> and then um, Arund Delay of Lotto Sudal won the final day. So that was kind of the five one-day races of Challenge Mallorca. And then there was another one-day race, uh, the GP Marseille that happened in France, and that one was won by Amory Kipo, Kapiot. who outsprinted Mess Peterson. Actually, it was like a really interesting sprint finale, if anyone watched it, uh, where Total Energies like really took control of the lead into the sprint and then dropped off Eddie Bostenhagen way too early. And then Mess was out in front way too early as well. And Amory just was well positioned and and waited for the right moment. It was good. It was a good sprint. It's always so very daunting the first live sprint on uh, on tele. It was my first race of the commentary season and about 5 kilometers before they arrive at the finish line I get incredibly nervous because 
some people are in different kits and some people are unknown or slightly more unknown. I would have recognized Mess Peterson instantly, but this was a, a little bit more unknown guy. So these first races of the season are always daunting. And if you look at the finish picture, um, Total Energy and Traxig Alfredo look absolutely identical from helicopter and shots and up front. They... We have we have all the all the faded sunset in the women's cycling peloton, but there's a lot of white in the men's peloton that you really can't distinguish anymore. They need to fix that <laughs> for my sake. I have a very short tangent. We, we, yeah, we, we talked about the, the kit thing before and the UCI needing to maybe pay closer attention to what everybody looks like. That seems like a really basic thing for them to do. They don't do. I feel like Valverde's Revenge would be a really great like esoteric band name. <laughs> if you're just like i want some high schooler out there you're starting a band with your buddies call it valverde's revenge and just and just see just to confuse non-cycling fans and the cycling fans will immediately know what you're talking about i really hope that there's no high schoolers that listen to this podcast <laughs> there are there are really there is no, a certain they... per- there's an under 18 percentage of of our listeners yeah wow Right? There's young people watching cycling, Abby. Look at Mikey. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the Challenge Moraga races were really interesting because you kind of, it's the first chunk of races where it's not a stage race. So everyone, every team can kind of throw something different at the race every day and kind of see what sticks. It's a really great race to challenge, um, to try different tactics and let different people kind of go for it. And there were some really big names that won at these races, Valverde being one of them. And he said after he won uh, that he's impressed at how he's riding at the age of 41. <laughs> I love it when riders, when riders say, I was very impressed by myself today. I was. Yeah. that's yeah. I feel like that's how we should end podcasts. Oh, that was an impressive podcast from us. <laughs> Haley, you can do your daily self-affirmations in front of the mirror. It's like, this was a really impressive day we by were, myself. We were say, so impressive on yourself. the podcast today. We were really, yeah. truly, genuinely impressive. Good, sen- good sensations. Yeah, I good feel sensations. Like we should, <laughs> excellent. We could always probably do better, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to ask Jose a little bit about, about Gourmet. Uh, it's, you know, won a sprint. You just talked to him. What, what do we need to know about this guy? Like, I, I, I feel like I've read maybe one or two pieces ever on him. I mean, is this a, is this a name we need to be paying attention to throughout the rest of the season? What's the what's the situation? I'm going to say it now. This man will be on the podium of Milan Sanremo. Ooh. Yeah. Um, And I have a little crush on him as well, uh, which is not very healthy when you're uh, turning 43 at the end of the week and he's 21. But (laughs) he's he's he is a lovely young. He's a lovely man. He's so humble. He's he's a, he's a faithful guy. He got married when he was twenty, which is um, and uh, and and got a child uh, last March. So um, he said, "We are old people in our family." Um, he looks older than twenty one for sure, but just it's just so the humility of him, the humbleness. But then he says, "Then I asked him like, but if you're so humble as you come across, um, you need people in the race to work for you because on his former teams they, he had somebody." Drop him in off, dropping him off at 5k to go and then he just had to make his way through the peloton if you look at the sprint of the under 23 world championships he, he he made up like 25 places or something um but now he has that team i think that's where a lot of our listeners will probably actually recognize him from even if they don't realize that's the same guy this is the guy who at the u23 worlds uh, you've probably seen this video went from 
what? Yeah, like 20th to third or something like that in the last like (laughs) 300 meters. It was crazy. It was was one of the most, it was one of the craziest, (laughs) like he was going 10K an hour faster than everybody, everybody around him. It was wild. And yeah, I mean, that points to a power output that, as you say, is is indicative of of likely success in the world tour i think oh he will he uh, he will absolutely do great things he's only 21 he um he did emphasize how difficult it is for african riders to make it in europe um especially now quebec has ended and the world cycling center has also cut their uh, junior and under 23 programs due to COVID. um he says it's a very expensive sport and you need to get on the radar of a european team and there's only so few opportunities to do that, like a tour of Rwanda, tour of Gabon. Um, he was lucky to go to Europe when he was 16, 17 years old. And his team manager said at the World Cycling Center, the UCI uh, training uh, team, uh, if that, that he was a remarkable rider because most of the riders from Eritrea are climbers. And he has got the, the body and the instincts of a classics rider. And he, mm. his biggest dream, well, next to winning the Tour de France, is actually winning Paris-Roubaix. Interesting. How awesome would that be? Interesting. <laughs> but now, now he has a team to drop him off in the final at a K to go or even 500 meters to go. This man will will win big things. Absolutely. Someone to keep an eye on for sure. Yeah, I mean, speaking of the sort of the, the African development pipeline, I think there's a lot of, this is something we want to touch on in more depth in a, in a future episode, but there's a lot of hope around esports. Uh, for for sort of the African development pipeline. Because even though, yes, a trainer and, all, and, and Zwift, they cost money, they cost a heck of a lot less money than trying to get somebody to Europe, right? And and they are proof that someone can do the power required to reach a certain level. So and also Rwanda twenty twenty five is going to be a huge uh, stimuli. How do you call it? a huge? That works. Um, yeah, it's it's going to it's going to inspire quite a lot of I think development development and hopefully like financial resources. One would hope is is the you know the world championships headed to Rwanda in twenty twenty five as you say. So even though Quebeca has folded, and obviously we've talked about that on this podcast a fair amount recently, there are still, there are some avenues. Uh, it's just not easy. It's definitely not easy. Before we move on, I, I had some good things to say in this section, but you sent me off on a complete wild goose chase when you mentioned Valverde's revenge. And I, <laughs> I, have, I have a brief memory of a horse called... Number six Valverde, I think, won the Grand National Horse Race. I think it was the day before Valverde won his first of the age, best on the age. Completely random. Back, but, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know of any bands with Valverde in their name. But, I'm assuming the horse wasn't named after him. Well, I guess it could have been, given his characteristics on a bike. <laughs> <laughs> it is a ton of places in, in Spain and even in, in France called Valverde, because it basically yeah. it means an green, horse, green so valley. It doesn't really make much oh. sense, but... Oh, well... <laughs> Valverde's revenge. Better than a dog in the case of Valverde. If- anyway. <laughs> Good one. Uh, <laughs> our listeners who are paying attention to uh, some controversial headlines about 10 years ago will we'll, we'll get that little joke. Uh, if not, maybe just Google Valverde's dog. Uh, <laughs> we'll- that, could, that could be a band name as well, Valverde's by the dog. way. Uh, Valverde's dog is prob- probably already a band name. How about this? If you out there, listeners, if you have a band with Valverde <laughs> in the name, this is a long shot. <laughs> Send us some of your music and, and we'll play it on the podcast. How about that? Abby's shaking her head. No, I mean, it can't be worse than the Astana rap, honestly. 
Nothing can, <laughs> frankly. Uh We've got a little bit more bike racing to talk about. The Saudi tour kicked off on Tuesday. That's today, a little bit ago. Caleb Ewan won a sprint, apparently. Yeah. Did it actually happen? Caleb because Ewan. Nobody it, saw it. It did. GCN uh, tweeted an apology for some issues with the live coverage, but Caleb Ewan did win the first stage. There was a little bit of gravel. Some crashes. Tour of Valencia, Volta Valencia, and Etoile Bessege are also coming up this week, so... We're leaving the one days behind for a minute. We've got mm. a bunch of stage racing on tap yeah. for the next week. Mm. Well, the road season is here. That's good news. We might have to move this podcast back to recording on Mondays, actually, because the uh, that's what we do during the road season. Let's move on from road racing. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. We've got a bit, of a, we've got a bit of a debate. Now, this is something that I actually put on last week's run sheet, but we decided would be just not a good thing to talk about um, in light of not really having a clear idea of what what Egg Bernal's future lo- would look like. Um, but there's been a fair amount of chatter about this. And in fact, Tom Pidcock, our new cyclocross world champion, expressed some opinions on this subject, which is that time trial bikes themselves are, well, they're not the safest things in the world. And obviously... Egan Bernal was on one when he crashed. Uh, so was Chris Froome, actually. And there's been a bit of chatter, including from myself, <laughs> that time trial bikes are just, they're just kind of, well, they're just asking for trouble, basically. Now, I'm not calling for a blanket ban of time trial bikes. I think that's a bit silly. But I do think that there's, there's some things that could probably be changed here. Uh, one of the suggestions I really liked, and I think this came from Adam Blythe, I think he was talking about this, is that currently the, so, so let me step back. The reason why time trial bikes, I think, are stupid. One, your hands are nowhere near the brakes, right? It's like if you took the brake pedal off of your car floor and instead made it a button on your dashboard that you had to reach away from your <laughs> from your steering wheel to hit. And then also the brakes are terrible. So it's only sort of a suggestion it's like break question mark, a little button on your dashboard. You hit it, you hope that you maybe stop eventually. So that that bit alone is just seems like a bad idea to me, right? Just riding around at very high speeds with your hands nowhere near the brakes. We, we don't really do that in any other type of cycling. The second thing is that the way that the UCI regulations are currently laid out, they really, they reward not looking where you're going, right? Because essentially there are rules around where your aero bars can be, whether they, you know, how flat they are. Uh, they basically have to be flat. The, the, the armrests and where your hands are have to be somewhat level. And so the way to go really fast is to tuck your head down and sort of in between your shoulder blades and look down so you're not looking where you're going, right? So you have this incredible combination of terrible brakes with brake levers nowhere near where your hands are and you're not looking where you're going. And it is not the least bit surprising that we then see crashes. Oh, and the bikes are just incredibly unstable to begin with, and you're usually running really deep wheels that get caught by wind. That seems to be the problem. Uh, uh, We believe was the problem with the Chris Froome crash a couple years ago. Caught by the wind, couldn't save it, basically. So you have these bikes that that are somewhat unrideable, really. They, like, they, they by, any sto- by any traditional definition of what a good bicycle is, they are a terrible bicycle. They don't go around corners. They don't stop. They're, they're awful. 
And yet we've put people on them and say, why don't you ride around at 30 miles an hour with your head down and, and good luck to you. So I think it was Adam Blythe, I believe, that was suggesting that the UCI updates some regulations so that they allow the praying mantis position. You might, you might remember this position from like the Floyd Landis era. I think he kind of popularized it back in the day. So at the very least, you're riding a terrible bicycle, but you're looking where you're going because that way your hands could be up in front of your face and you could just look forward and that would be an efficient position. What do we think about this? Ban time trial bikes, alter the regulations. What's the solution here? Because frankly, they're terrible and we need to, we need to do something about it. I think it's funny that pretty much everybody else has checked out the conversation here. It's just you and me, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> mono a mono. <laughs> Ronan, you like time trial bikes. Defend the time trial bike. Uh, actually, I kind of just agree with everything you're saying there. And the the one thing that I can't understand is why we can't still have uh, brake levers built into our aero extensions. Like I think Bobby Julik used to run that on his in his CSC days. Seems like a pretty good idea. I will just say the braking is better now since they've moved to disc brakes. Now that might open a whole other can of worms, but they are just better on time trial bikes. That's true. Um, yeah, so, but yeah, I'm actually in agreement that I, I do think the UCI regulations are forcing riders to find new ways of improving their aero position and simply because the regulations just outlaw so much of what we used to do to, to get faster on time trial bikes. Add to that, I think there is, well, the best example I have is that I'm part of quite a few Facebook groups on time trial positions and time trial forums and stuff. Of course and there's are. just so many times where you see someone puts up a picture, asks for the, the, the group to critique their position, and they're literally looking at the ground. You know, they're not looking ahead of them. They're looking either straight down or slightly in front of the bike, which is not far enough in front when you're riding at 30, 35 mile an hour. And, you know, there is always comments below it that may look fast, but it's terrible because you can't see where you're going. And that's, you know, that is the... I guess that's the concern with time trial bikes now is that as riders are getting more and more aerodynamic, they're perhaps, it's obviously not the case for everybody. If you look at Philippe Ogan on a time trial bike, he's pretty damn aero, but he can corner like, you know, like a, a train on tracks or whatever. He's just incredible on the time trial bike. But there are, you know, some instances where you know, riders just have their head down and, and, and can't see where they're going. Uh, I should, I should, I should. The caveat here, or the, the, the context here, we don't know how Egan Bernal hit the back of that bus. We, we should say that. That's just what I was about yeah, to say. Like, yeah. I mean, the bus could have pulled out in front of him. We have no idea. Uh, I do think it's probably safe to say that uh, something went wrong, but that's about, all we can, that's about all we can say. We don't know whether something went wrong with where he was. We don't know what, with his bicycle, with the bus driver. We, 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 we don't really know. All we know is he no, ran into the back do, of the bus at heavy. We do know. What do we know? We do know uh, there was a little bit last week when they were kind of updating everyone on the situation with Bernal in the hospital. There was a little bit from the police from the crash um, that they were investigating it. And in their preliminary investigations, the bus driver did not do anything wrong. He was pulled over uh, at a stop where passengers were getting out. And so we do. That's the that's bus all we know. Fault, yeah, we know. We we think we think we know that from the preliminary investigations by the police, but but the the conversation for me isn't even about Bernal; it's about 
and Pitcock's comments here because we, we certainly don't know was Bernal looking in front of him? Was it a problem with his brakes? We have none of that sort of information. So, you know, yeah. the, the conversation for me is, is more about Pitcock's comments than, than Bernal's. And, and I think we've seen enough time trial bike crashes here to, to take Pitcock's comments seriously. And, you know, whether it's Bernal or Froome or, or, or half a dozen others that have happened over the last couple of years, there's, there's no question that these are not um, as safe to ride around for a bunch of reasons we've already talked about as a regular road bike. And so what can the governing body do? This again returns us to like what the UCI should actually be focused on uh, as opposed to some of the things that they're currently focused on. What can they do to make this discipline safer? Because I think that some of the stuff that they've done is actually served to make it less safe, even if that was not the intention. Yeah, for me, like the, when I think about time trials, I'm thinking of the UCI banning Ghana's end caps on his front wheel, you know, something that's making zero difference, you know, banning all sorts of different little component upgrades and all the things that I personally enjoy about time trailing. And then the actual safety aspect of it is like, yeah, we haven't really had any updates to make it safer that I can remember. Uh, I'm sure that UCI would claim that some of those updates are with safety in mind, but uh, yeah, I, I, I guess, you know, Part of it as well is that, you know, as a counter argument, the bikes don't need to be as rideable as a road bike because we're not riding in, in a peloton. You're, you know, you're riding a time trial bike on your own or at most with a teammate in front and behind you. So, the, you know, that, that uh, rideability isn't as crucial as it is with a standard road bike. I still want my, my bike <laughs> to be a good bicycle. I, I don't think that that's asking too much to have a bicycle that can like stop and turn and do good, bicycle stuff. Good time trial bicycle to me is fast. Not, <laughs> it's not the handling, the it's problem. the speed. This is the problem. Merck's TTs forever. Ban them. No, I'm kidding. Don't ban them. They're kind of fun. That's the problem. <sighs> yeah, I, I don't know. Like I said, I think the, like, you know, returning to the praying mantis position in some way would be good. Some sort of requirement that you look where you're going. Like that seems to be, you know, the UCI has proved over the last year that it has no qualms banning things like the, you know, the puppy paws sort of invisible aero bars position on a regular road bike. And part of that is because your hands are nowhere near the brakes, right? They also, they've, 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 they've banned the super tuck, right? They've banned positions that, that they find unsafe. Now we can argue all day about whether those are smart things to ban or not, but at least with puppy paws, you're still looking where you're going generally. I feel like some sort of regulation that would require that. And again, I don't know how to do, I don't really know how to do that uh, other than design the position requirements such that the fastest way to go is looking forward, right? I mean, because time trialists we know are going to find the fastest position within the rules. And so the rules have to be designed structurally so that they force riders into a more safe position. I guess the, the difficulty for the UCI is finding some regulation that, you know, will result in riders adopting safer positions without, you know, then myself included coming back and slating them for destroying time trialing because you can't take an aero position any longer. So, you know, they're, they're you know, I, I do think if, if take, for example, we go back to the Merck's time trialing, you know, drop handlebars and, and that sort of Merck's rules that we see, you know, the way the R record went, it, it basically killed the R record for, for the whole duration of that time where we were running it on Merck's rules. Uh, and the same would 
time traveling. I don't as much as some people might not enjoy time trials, I do think they would be less enjoyable if it wasn't for all the, the tech. Because, you know, let's face it, actually watching a single rider ride down the road on TV where you get no impression of how fast they're going, how much effort they're doing. You know, there's there's very little tactics involved in it compared to road racing. It's not all that exciting. But can, can we just the bikes are exciting, I think. Can we just pull that clip? of Ronan saying that time trials aren't exciting and just, just <laughs> keep it in our back pocket for, for yeah. future debates. I would like to hang out. I've said it many times before. I, I don't like time traveling. I just love getting ready for one <laughs> from the moment it actually starts. <laughs> I hate it. The, if you do a 10 miles, say 20 minutes or whatever, those 10 miles are just like the most horrible 10 miles ever. But is that all that tinkering with the bikes and all in advance and getting the position dialed? And, that part's yeah, fun. That's, that's yeah, that's just... Yeah. But I mean, that, this is the... This is the issue, right? It's like you're going to do that tinkering within the rules. And so they just need to design like rule. For example, the, the sort of like the three to one aspect ratio stuff that, that, that governs frame geometry and like the reason why triathlon frames have really started to, to diverge from, you know, UCI legal time trial frames is because of all these rules that, that the UCI has around frame essentially shape. That stuff doesn't really make any difference to safety it might make us a, a, like a marginal difference to the the impact of crosswinds and things like that but really that's just to keep time trial bikes looking like bicycles that's the only reason why really why the uci has done that stuff i would rather that they focus less on you know the aspect ratio of of my fork and more on making sure that people are looking where they're going that seems like a better use of rules and regulations maybe they just like throw foam bollards in front of people every once in a while and if you hit one you get a you get a time penalty how about that you have to look where you're going <laughs> i i 100 agree with you and i think that is the the snippet we need to cut from this podcast or maybe that's the title for this podcast kaylee and ronan agree on time trial bikes <laughs> <laughs> all right let's leave it at that we just uh, it's yeah something something needs to be done Modern TT positions are really sketchy. They generally are, genuinely are. I would say the only place where I would feel comfortable with sort of a modern TT position is is on a velodrome doing an hour record, right? Because because the fastest ones, you're basically looking at your front tire the entire time. And then you take these bikes out training and your hands are nowhere near the brakes and all these other issues. And it's asking for trouble. There is, of course, the, the UK time trial scene that runs outside of the UCI regulations. And... I think pretty much all the writers in that scene have adopted that praying mantis position. And I've written in that position myself. You can certainly see much more than if you're, I think the rule with UCI now is that your levers on your end, your extensions can't be more than 10 centimeters above the, the pad and the elbow rest. And that doesn't allow for the same sort of angle on the, those uh, extensions that, that allows you to adopt that praying mantis position. And the idea behind that is that you can basically hide your head behind your, behind your hands and effectively take up a much more aerodynamic position. It's just one um, object, you know, cutting into the, the wind rather than your hands and your head as two separate objects. Uh, and that, you know, I think that would actually both pays the time trials because pretty much all of them probably want to adopt that position. It doesn't work for everybody, but it works for a lot of people. And, and it is faster, but it, w- it would also be safer. There we go. If the UCI is listening, and we know sometimes they do, because we get emails about things we've said, <laughs> maybe, maybe consider, maybe consider that change. 
Because it's not entirely clear why they banned it to begin with, other than they didn't like Floyd Landis. I think that was pretty much the entire reason. So, all right, that's it from us today. We're going to wrap up this week's episode. Make sure you go check out the latest freewheeling for an even deeper dive into the Cyclocross World Championships. And go check out go check out this week's Nerd Alert interview with uh, the Pros Closet founder. Pretty interesting look into the used bike market and what's going on there. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Tell us what you think about Tom Trail Bikes. Banned? Not banned? We can just ban them. They're terrible. Ronan, they're terrible. They're terrible bicycles. I hate them. Ronan would be so sad. I would. I am so sad right now because I don't have a time trailer. <laughs> it's not my, I'm, I'm incomplete. It's, they're uncomfortable. The brakes are terrible. Why? Kelly, why? you're thinking about riding them. I'm not talking about riding them. I'm just talking about them. <laughs> you guys didn't even get, to in, get into like how unsafe time trial helmets are. They're, oh, yeah. That, those do nothing for you if you crash. Yep. Oh, well, the, that's that's not true. The big point sticking out the back could definitely cause extra damage. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> uh, uh, I, like, I like that the UCI has, like, one of the most clearly written rules in the UCI hand, uh, rulebook bans fairings of, like, pretty much any t- type. So basically, like, a, a non-structural fairing, which is literally what a time trial helmet is, and yet time trial helmets are allowed. I don't really, I don't it's, get it. What's the POC one then? The POC one's like, the like POC the, one should be really bill illegal. One? The duck bill one? <laughs> All right. <laughs> we tried to end the episode. All right, I'm trying again. We're out. <laughs> we'll, we'll be back. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye. We are rolling pedals for the gold medals. Our job is to win. Astana is my team. We are riding to win, and it will be done. Astana's my team from Kazakhstan. We are rolling pedals for the gold medals. Our job is to win. Astana is my team. We are riding to win, and it will be done. Astana is my team from Kazakhstan.